Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. The Wexner Center for the Arts is now showing a retrospective of the paintings of Martin Wong, a San Francisco-raised, New York-based painter of urban life in the 1980s and 90s. Titled Martin Wong, Human and Stomatic, the show features over 80 paintings, including Wong's street scenes, buildingscapes, constellations, interiors, and his late cacti paintings. It also includes archival materials, often from the Martin Wong papers in New York University's Fales Library. The exhibition, which will be on view in Columbus through August 7th, was co-curated by Yasmin Ramirez and this week's lead guest, Antonio Sergio Besa. Besa is the director of curatorial and educational programs at the Bronx Museum of the Arts, which originated the exhibition. His previous projects include Beyond the Super Square, Art and Architecture in Latin America After Modernism, which was published by Fordham University Press in 2014. Don't miss the catalog for this show. It's quite good. It was published by Black Dog. On the second segment, Thylias Moss discusses her 2011 video poem, The Glory Prelude to a Widow Shrine System. It's on view in Ellipsis, an exhibition about the interplay between the five senses and visual art that's at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis through July 2nd. First up, Sergio Besa, after the break. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Frank Stella, A Retrospective, a comprehensive survey of one of the most important living American artists. This exhibition presents Frank Stella's career to date, showcasing his prolific output from the mid-1950s to the present through approximately 100 works, including paintings, reliefs, maquettes, sculptures, and drawings. This retrospective is curated by Michael Opping, chief curator of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in association with Adam Weinberg, Alice Pratt Brown Director of the Whitney Museum of American Art. Frank Stella, a retrospective on view in Fort Worth through September 18th. In Roman decor, elaborate mosaics transformed entire rooms into spectacular settings of vibrant color, figural imagery, and abstract design. On view now at the Getty Villa, Roman mosaics across the empire showcases the Getty Museum's collection of mosaics from the 2nd to the 6th century tracing their histories throughout the Roman Empire. An online catalog allows you to come along on this journey from anywhere in the world. Visit getty.edu publications to learn more. Blaffer Art Museum presents the first major U.S. museum exhibition for Matthew Ronay, June 4th through October 1st. Although Ronay has a form of colorblindness, his handcrafted sculptures, installations, and reliefs combine vivid hues from across the spectrum that seem to vibrate and hum. From June 4th through September 10th, Hilary Lloyd presents video installations, objects, and architectural interventions created specifically for Blaffer's galleries. More at blafferartmuseum.org. And we're back. Antonio Sergio Beso, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I think we should start with some biography because that might be a little bit relevant to to parts of the the story and the work. Martin Wong grows up in San Francisco in a particular place and time. When does he grow up and kind of specifically where in the city? You might know he was born in, in Portland, Oregon. And what I discovered after all my research was done was that he was born in Portland just because his mother needed assistance from her sister. So, you know, that there's this whole family kind of a story that's very interesting. But I believe he was born in in Portland and he moved she moved back to San Francisco almost immediately. So that was the end of the 1940s. Uh, he was born in 1946 and he really comes of age with that sort of a he's a, he's very young during the the beat generation kind of explosion, and when he's a, a youth, the counterculture. And I think those two movements, for me, they were very important, kind of helping frame the whole exhibition around that. And it's, as you 
delve into his work, you actually find references to both kind of uh, movements. He was an avid reader, and also he wrote extensive, many, many books of poetry in this very kind of ornate uh, calligraphy, which is very kind of unique and, uh, and, and personal. But at the same time, you can see inflection of, you know, sort of the beat style, that sort of, sort of a stream of consciousness kind of language. And, uh, and then also the imagery, that it's very, it's still very useful. It's, you know, some things you can see that that is like influenced by Blake uh, and poets that I believe at the time they were very popular among people from his generation. But then also you can see like elements of beat poetry uh, and I think particularly Ginsburg. And then of course, as he becomes a young man, he gets very involved with uh, some of the hippie communities in the area, particularly this one called Cauliflower, which is the community that generated the coquettes. There was this man from the East Coast, actually, that made his way to, to the West Coast and ended up in San Francisco, and he adopted this name of Hibiscus, and he was the founder of, of the coquettes. And uh, Martin was at the center of, of all that, collaborating with the group and creating sets and, and I believe, some, uh, some of the outfits and posters. And uh, so when you go see the exhibition, you actually will see some documentation related to that. And those are Wong's photographs of, of, of the cockettes, right? I believe so. It's kind of hard to say. You know, I believe he might have given the camera to other people because there is at least one picture that he is featuring that, or maybe he's doing a selfie. <laughs> you know, it's hard to tell. But yeah, all this documentation was, you know, among his belongings. So, and it's part of the archives that the state still holds. He must have lived a kind of life that those of us who grew up, grew up in the Bay Area dream of in the sense that he lived six blocks from the panhandle of Golden Gate Park, which was the epicenter of the counterculture. He could he could walk out his front door and walk for five minutes and be there in the middle of it. And that must have just had an enormous impact on his worldview and his everything else. It might have been extremely exciting for him. You know, I just imagine this only child really protected and being groomed to maybe become also an engineer like his parents. His first choice in, in, in college is architecture, and uh, he only stays for a year, and he goes on and uh, he dedicates himself to the arts. But I think this idea of all the excitement that is going on in, um, in San Francisco at the time, it might have struck him as, as you know, like a... Uh, a meteor, or you know, something other, <laughs> something that he could never imagine in his very sheltered and I, I would even say lonely life. You know, like this young boy living with his uh, with his parents and uh, uh, in a very kind of a protected environment. So one of the great revelations that I had in preparing for the show was when I visited his house. There is this moment that. Uh, his mother, Florence, take us to his bedroom. Just the, the, the setting is, is really, it was very strong because she kept his bedroom as if he was still around. You know, there was all the objects, all the drawings that he he did as a kid, tons of letters that he had sent from New York to, to the parents. But most telling, there was on the walls this series of self-portraits that he did as a teenager. And I believe he started this series when he was about 12 or 13 years old. And it went all the way to when he went to college at age 17 or 16. And, uh, and it's a remarkable series of paintings. I researched that. I was trying to, to learn who he had started with. And I, I, had no luck in figuring that out, so it seemed that it was all self-taught. But in any case, the the lesson that I took from there was this very strong kind of personality, like, but also this sense of uh, someone who's during his youth he's very introspective, and then at some point he goes out there 
and he meets the other, and uh, he he becomes fascinated by communities, whether it's the communities, the hippie communities in the Bay Area, or when he comes to New York and he embraces the communities in the Lower East Side. So there is a very kind of interesting kind of a narrative arc there, if you will. There's a great picture in the catalog of those self-portraits on Martin's bedroom wall. We'll, we'll have a picture of that on manpodcast.com. You mentioned that Wong leaves San Francisco and moves to New York. When does he go, and why does he go east? He came to New York in 1978, and the, the reason why he came, it, it's anyone's conjecture. We, we really have no idea. I, and I think a lot of sort of uh, trying to understand the facts around or motivations in in uh, in in Martin's life, it's it's kind of a hard task. I think he was he was a very private person, but nevertheless he kind of telegraphs like some you know little bit of some some little facts or some little, little clues, let's say, whether in the paintings or in letters, and and it's up to you to kind of put all those things together and kind of create a picture. In my mind, probably by 1978, he, maybe he ended a relationship in, in San Francisco. Maybe he was exhausted by his relationship with his mother particularly. I think she had a very hard time to accept the fact that he was gay. And I think he comes to New York in a way, sort of running away from all that. And one of the things that makes, makes me think about this is that he had no no friends here in New York. He comes on his own, and he comes basically with no plans. He comes with very little money, and uh, he decides to stay because he sees this hotel, a very derelict hotel in, in uh, close to this uh, seaport uh, area in downtown Manhattan. And he, during a conversation, he's offered a, a, a job as a night porter in exchange for a room. And that's, you know, he decides to say. So there is a letter, actually, in uh, in the exhibition that he sends to his mother, and that's just a couple of years after his he moved to New York. And one of the things that he says is, is like, I I'm I'm much better now. You know, he he doesn't he doesn't elaborate a lot on his state, and he's always he's always trying to be the sunny, kind of optimistic and uh, and happy guy. But you see that there was some kind of some kind of story behind that. It seems like he starts painting much more intently, if you will, once he's in New York. Was that a product of his being around a vibrant Lower East Side scene in the late 70s? Why does he start not just painting, but painting with kind of a very consistent, identifiable style very early on? You know, it's a very it's a very peculiar, very strange kind of the, the way everything happened for him and the way you say it's very interesting because it makes me wonder whether he was actually aware of what was going on in the lower east side but he actually he didn't seem to know because the very first three years that he is here in new york he spent most of his time in his bedroom in the hotel painting and that's when he actually kind of uh, have his breakthrough, and he develops some of the few elements that he carries on through throughout his, his career. So the brickwork, the constellations, and uh, most importantly, the, the color. You know, he develops this very kind of dark palette, lots of browns and, and, and ochres, and, uh, which is actually, a lot of people think that this has a relationship with his previous work as a ceramicist, but it's interesting that during the time he's a ceramicist and he's doing a little bit of paintings, the paintings, they're very colorful and uh, very influenced maybe by the underground comics. And, you know, they they don't have the the rigor of uh, of the work that he begins to to create in New York very early on in the, from 1978 to 1982, 1983. He has already created like some of his uh, most impressive paintings. The palette all reminds me of, of, especially the colors reminds me of of Mexican modernism and those kind of dusky, those deep dusky 
dusky colors. That's very interesting. Yeah, I think he had a love for Mexico, and there is a misreading there because uh, Martin's biological father passed away when he was three years old, and his mother married again. I think Martin might have been nine years old. So his stepfather was also Chinese-American, but via Mexico. So Martin grew up with this idea that he had Mexican roots, you know, because he he always considered his stepfather his father, and uh, and he had this fascination with Mexico. And uh, although he didn't speak Spanish, but when he comes to New York, he he's basically hanging out with the crowd that it's mostly Latino, mostly Puerto Rican. But you know, this love for kind of Mexican. Anything Latino is very, very strong in his, in Martin. And, and uh, I think it's just, you know, it's possible that he was looking at some Mexican art and, uh, and kind of uh, incorporated some of that. He would incorporate a lot of other things. You know, in the 70s, before he came to New York, he traveled in Asia. And uh, I believe he was in India and Afghanistan. And he was basically looking at Asian art and uh, Himalayan art. And when he comes back, he does some ceramics and also some paintings that have some elements, you know, that kind of uh, pay homage to that. So he's, you know, whatever he is, he's this kind of a sponge, you know, kind of uh, adopting a lot of, of the elements that are around him. I'm a little reluctant to to pick out a painting as being the first mature or first important painting because as we were saying he's 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 where he gets very quickly and he's very consistent in that style but voices from 1981 seems like a particularly important early painting what 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 is that painting and and is it is it important i i cannot say that it's important in terms of sort of a a scholarly judgment about that but it's a painting that i feel very very strongly about and actually, about five years ago, I tried to acquire for the Bronx Museum because I felt very strongly that, you know, we should have that work in the collection. And one of the reasons for that I, is actually, yes, there is a lot of the, the, the elements that mark the transition. You know, there is a, it's still a little bit of the yellow that he was using still in San Francisco, but you see a little bit of the browns. But I think the most kind of interesting element in that painting is the the window in the back that leads to a brick wall and uh, and you have bars and in a sense when you see those paintings and then later you see his paintings about prison you see that he he was already interested in that in that issue of confinement very early on which is 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 quite remarkable so I think it's a very strong painting. And, you know, you can object that, you know, the technique is, is maybe still not there, but in terms of just the pure emotional content of the painting, it's, it's a pretty remarkable work. And it's got the this stack of books on the floor that, that kind of rise up in a pile to the bed, books with titles like New York After Dark and Fishing for Boys, funny, campy, all of that good stuff. You mentioned the prison motif and the incarceration motif that kind of runs through a lot of Wong's work. How does it get into the work and why? You know, in my essay, I was very interested in that, particularly in the this idea of Martin as a gay man from the pre-Stonewall generation. But he was in the hippie, part of the hippie movement, so, you know, he, he could have been even more adventurous as he was, but it seemed that he was very, at heart, he was still very conservative, let's say. And one thing that I was looking at around that time in the 70s is the difficulty that some gay writers or as they have to actually approach the subject. So I brought up two examples. One is a novel that Tennessee Williams published in the 70s, and I believe that it's his most candid work because the character is a gay character living in this very derelict 
building in downtown Manhattan, and I found a lot of uh, I found that the work had a lot of uh, similarities with the the scene in New York when when Martin came to New York. And the other work also that I thought about it was John Cheever's The Falconer, which is the story of uh, this straight man that, because of a series of incidents, he ends up in jail and he ends up having a homosexual affair with uh, with an inmate. And we know that Cheever himself had his own difficulty to come out as a as a gay man, and that work, which is a really remarkable work, it's for him to kind of address the situation, he has to put the character in, in jail. And I was very kind of uh, taken with that this idea. And so that is to say that I approached Martin's focus on, on, on jail and incarceration from that kind of uh, same perspective. You know, it's almost like there was only possibility of of, let's say, I'm not even saying romance, but a relationship between two men if it's in a, in, a, in a situation that there is only man and there is no figure of woman around. So this is on the one hand. On the other hand, and I think it's the most, let's say, plausible reason why all this work came about, is that in the early 80s when he moved from downtown Manhattan and he gets an apartment in the Lower Side, he meets Miguel Pinheiro, the playwright, who actually discovered his voice as a poet and as a playwright in jail. And Miguel was, you know, as ambivalent about his sexuality as Cheever or Martin or Tennessee and, and, and so forth. And uh, you might be familiar with his play Short Eyes, which is something that had a huge impact on Martin. And Martin, in the exhibition, we have two paintings that actually illustrate uh, one scene of the play, and then there is another one that is an homage to Pinheiro. And uh, Pinheiro, by this time, had passed away, and he does a portrait of Pinheiro in front of Sing Sing, and he breaks the wall to show the characters that Pinheiro used in his play. And so he had this fascination with Pinheiro. I believe he even lived vicariously through Pinheiro because, you know, he was always a mama's boy. He was always a, you know, a, a very kind of cautious guy. But, you know, living in New York, living in the Lower Side with the people like Pinheiro and his coterie of, uh, you know, very young kids who were they're just in and out of jail. So he had this kind of, uh, you know, and uh, another kind of a parallel that was interesting for me was Fassbinder who also had a lot of, you know, kind of difficulty to kind of address that issue. And then he does Carell and, you know, the, the that kind of a very seedy, almost kind of a jail-like environment of the film. And uh, I believe there is only one female character in the whole film. And it's just, you know... So I think all those, you know, those, those let's say, cultural products that it's from that time... I think Carell came a little bit later, came in the 80s, but if you look at the 70s particularly, you know, there is there is a very kind of, I don't know how to say this, but I believe that, you know, this fascination with Dungeon and, you know, the, the whole S&M kind of iconography, it's, it's kind of all related to that. I don't think Martin was interested in that, but, you know, he, he filtered some of, some of those elements. Another motif that is in a lot of the work over many years is the use of brick walls, either in perspectival space or not. Examples include Heaven from 1988, a round, six-foot round painting, and the, the 1988 painting Rapture at SF MoMA. Why, why brick walls? You know, I, I have to say, because I, I am actually originally from Brazil, and I came to New York in 1988. And I remember when I got to New York, I was just, you know, overwhelmed with with the bricks and the color of the bricks. And I believe that that had the same impact on Martin because I believe the architecture in San Francisco is very different of the architecture in New York. You'll never find a brick building in San Francisco because it would have fallen down in one of 83 earthquakes. <laughs> exactly. 
you'll you'll have those beautiful Victorian houses, but it's I believe it's all wood, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in New York, he comes, and particularly in the Lower East Side, it's all brick, you know. And so for me, I think this is one of the might be one of the things. But then also, I think his very tactile taste for the material. You know, remember he was trained as a ceramicist. And also just like the visions, if you see some of the the paintings, there is the one, it's not in at the Wexner, but it's a painting that it's at the Whitney, and that's a two firemen kissing. And behind them, you'll see a building that the building in front had fell off, but you see the colors of the rooms of the corresponding apartments that fell. And so he had an eye for that, you know. He had an eye for, in a sense, all the transition that the city was going through during that time. And that's interesting. In the interview that we published in the catalog, my co-curator, Yasmin Ramirez, she asks him, why, why did you paint the Lloyd side? Why did you do all this? And his answer is so matter-of-fact. He says, well, I was here. So, you know, if I, if, I was, if I were somewhere else, I would probably have done something different. And I always love that, that answer because it just kind of shows the, the kind of artist that he was. He was really not kind of fantasizing about you know, something that he was after. He was really looking at what was right in front of him and then kind of uh, over, uh, superimposing with, uh, you know, his own fantasies and uh, aspirations and, and his unbridled romantic, you know, kind of uh, vision of everything. So. The, the way you tell that story makes me think that the brick paintings then are related to the photo collages from the 1980s of photo collages of decaying urbanity. It was around, it was tactile. I mean, I, I, I guess I kind of remember New York at that time, and, and you could kind of just breathe in those buildings as you walked by them as they were destroyed or falling apart or whatever. But also remember, you know, Martin in the past, and this is something that I always resisted to, there have been a lot of people that say, oh, he was an outside artist, or he was a Naive, he was not. He was a really, really smart and sophisticated man, and he actually knew a lot of our history. So I'm sure he was looking at Hopper. I think he always wanted to be a classic, you know. And and the framing of some of those buildings, and the, he's redoing Hopper, and he's redoing a lot of those guys from you know early in the century, but with this new sensibility and this this new perspective that you know, things will disappear. All that will disappear. Maybe he didn't have that very clear in his mind, but he saw buildings collapsing in front of him, you know, and he was registering all that. Another, and I, I'm not so sure if he knew about that, but there is this Bay Area artist, Robert Arneson, who was also a ceramicist, and he did a series of bricks. And at some point, I actually wanted to include one of those works as a reference in the catalog, and I thought it was a little bit too contrived. But, you know, I think there is, yeah, there is, let's say, a, a, a line that you can follow there. That... I'm glad you brought up his art historical interests, because history or art history over many decades has a tendency, unfortunately, to assume or to treat self-taught artists as outsiders, whether they are or not. Another another part of art history that, that Wong was obviously looking at a lot was Trump Loewe painting. Why do you think, and, and, and he plays with the conventions of, of, of Trump Loewe, such as in paintings like Voices, the one we were talking about earlier. Why do you think he's interested in, a, in, in that aesthetic and what does he get out of it? I think everything in, 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 in Martin is very allegorical. So, and in, in, in the sense, you know, Benjamin says that allegory was the the trademark of the Baroque. And I think he's very Baroque. You know, like his taste for the frames and he uses these really, you know, beat up frames, but you know, he wants the work to look like a very, you know, kind of regal. But the Trump Loyal and uh, and and you know, this this little world within the frame, these are all, you know, allegories. 
you know. And uh, it might sound a little bit cheesy to say this, but I, I think he's, it's an allegory for about his own life. You know, he's, he's constantly saying, here I am. I know this guy. This and this happen, you know. And I think that's what's so unique in his work compared to a lot of the other works of Horace working at the same time is that the work becomes a testament of, of his era, you know. We actually get to know more of Martin, and we get to know about the Lois side, and we get to know about Pinheiro and uh, a whole cast of characters because of, you know, these very narrative paintings that he creates, you know. And it's not, not narrative in that, you know, kind of a illust illustrative kind of sense, but it's because of, you know, the allegorical kind of arrangement of, you know, of the signifiers in the, in, in, within the picture. Near the end of, of Wong's life, he brings new, new imagery into the work, particularly skies and constellations and zodiac signs, and then these kind of cactus-like forms. What do you think opened him up to, <laughs> to opening up the work that way? <laughs> You know, the, the constellations actually, they they start like, during the 70s. You have a work from 1978 that he started in Eureka. It's an eight ball with the flames. And behind the eight ball, you already see the constellations. But he kind of, uh, you know, he, he refined that. And I think the constellations, it's such a, a fantastic kind of poetic statement, you know? Because, for example, he does scenes of prisons, and then you see the constellations above, you know? So it's like, okay, this is this is our, you know, muddy human existence, <laughs> but you see the stars above, you know? Just to be very kind of uh, blatant here. There is one painting that it's very tough, and I didn't want to show here at the Bronx Museum because it's uh, it's a scene in prison and it's three men three men engaged in in sex and the and the painting is called Mintaka and I was like what is Mintaka and I kind of did a little bit of a search it's Mintaka constellation you know so he had a very kind of uh, let's say personal sort of mythology about you know about the the, the constellations but that kind of really kind of followed throughout his entire phase here in New York. One, let's say, element of his paintings that kind of disappeared early on was sign language. It does for maybe like four or five years, and then he decides to, you know, drop that. Or sometimes he kind of bring it up, but in very kind of sort of a controlled situation. It's not the main element of the painting. But the constellations... Whenever he has an opportunity, you see the constellations behind, which is a really beautiful statement. Now, as for the cacti, that for me was another revelation when I went to visit his mother, because I, the first time that I saw those paintings, I remember seeing at a gallery in New York, and and I was like, what is this? What, you know, he did the the bricks, he did the many prison, and I follow all this, but. The cacti, did he run out of a topic, imagination? And the little that I knew that those cacti and succulents, actually it's his mother's plants that he kept in the back of the house. So when he went back to, to live with her in 1994, and uh, he had been already diagnosed with uh, HIV, and his health just kind of, you know, he began to lose energy and, and so forth. And I, I I had in mind that the, the last few things he did was to go to the backyard and, and, and do these little paintings, you know. And I think this, we have three in the exhibition. There are many, many more. Uh, he was very prolific as always. But I believe the last one that we have is from 1997, and he died in 1999. So it was really, you know, among the very last things that he did. And then you can, you know, conjecture about the symbolism of the cacti, this very resilient plant 
in a very adverse kind of climate, you know, sort of withholding the water and and but also the you know the spikes, the thorns, kind of a, being like sort of a, a a protection, you know. So again, it's you know very kind of I believe a very personal symbolism there. Well, Sergio Besa, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2016, a, the, though, only. The third biennial of artists working throughout Los Angeles. Organized by Hammer curator Aram Moshayeti and the Renaissance Society's Hamza Walker, Made in L.A. 2016 features the work of 26 artists. Occupying the entire Hammer Museum, the exhibition includes condensed monographic surveys, comprehensive displays of multi-year projects, the premiere of new bodies of work and newly commissioned works from emerging artists. Find details at hammer.ucla.edu. Made in L.A. 2016, a, the, though, only. On view June 12th through August 28th at the Hammer Museum. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Martin Wong, Human Instamatic, on view May 14th through August 7th. This widely acclaimed show, called A Complete View of One of Our Great Urban Visionaries by The New York Times, features more than 80 paintings from every stage of Wong's extraordinary career, in all their formal inventive, gritty, and lyrical power. Originally presented at the Bronx Museum, the Wexner Center is the Dazzling Exhibition's first stop on a national tour. For more information on Human Instamatic, including additional events related to the exhibition, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers. Opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Thylias Moss, welcome to the Modern Art Nets podcast. It's my pleasure to be part of it. So according to the Pulitzer, this exhibition marks the first time the video poetry of either you or John Lucas and Claudia Rankin, who, who have a piece in, in the ellipsis, first time that video poetry has been included in a visual arts exhibition. And as this is a, a visual art show at an art museum, probably we should start with that. So what is a video poem? Well, for, for me, uh, a video poem is, is this thing where... One of my problems with um, contemporary poetry, and this was true as, as a professor as, as well, was that people would always claim they didn't get it, they didn't understand it. And so my idea was to involve as many of the senses as possible. And so by, by creating something where it's not supposed to make necessarily a logical sense, because you have a convergence of the visual and the sonic especially, because at, at least at, at this time in my making, I'm not able to, to pull in the olfactory in, in what I make. That is, I make some things for, I consider that this is still made for the page. It's just a different kind of page. This page moves. Yeah, and, and so it's to say if you can't see everything, maybe you'll hear something. So you might, you might hear more than you see. But the idea is, is that there's a greater opportunity for capture of ideas if you can see and hear. And it's moving. And so an idea of time is, is altered because especially if it's, if it's looped, it will play over and over and over. And I, I view error, for instance, as an opportunity for another way of knowing, another way of perceiving, another way of seeing. And so what error does is open up another path that you can follow. What, ideally, what would happen in the playback of this, 
equipment would break so that you would have to show it differently. You see, what I, what I, what I don't like in, in something playing back is that we see it the same way every time. And ideally, it should be different every time. I don't know that other makers of the video poem would say the same thing. And I think, I, I think in that sense, it's like any other poetry. But for me, I want on, on, on the paper page, you don't have represented necessarily sonic elements. But you can in the video thing. And you see, as, as a maker of it, I can, I can have frames overlap so you can hear things and see things, and some of it can linger into the next frame. So it, there's a better carryover that I think people understand. But the idea is for, for me was to begin, this came out of my whole thing of, of, of limited fork theory. And if you think of the, the normal eating utensil, there are spaces between the tines or prongs of the fork, and these are spaces in which information is lost. It's inevitable. So you are never working with everything anyway. You're only working with partialities of partialities. Is there any specific way in which having a video poem seen in the context of an art museum, is, is there a context there that is either interesting or useful to you? Oh, yes, absolutely, because it, it's this recognition by others that what I make has usefulness in a place other than on paper. See, for, for me, a page is whatever houses the event, and so a poem is an event. And I think an idea of an event is even more emphasized with something that moves. Yeah, so by being in a, in a museum, there's, there's sort of an agreement there, those who the curators agreed with me that there is something worthy of being seen and heard. So the title of this piece is The Glory Prelude to a Widow Shrine System. It's extraordinarily mellifluous. What is the origin of, of that phrase and or title? All right. Now, Widow Shrine System. This is because my father died in 1980. And um, I'm more like him than like my mother. And so this is about... And, and, oh, he bought the house my mother still lives in in 1963 because she said as long as she still lived in the house he bought, it was as if he was taking care of her. And let me quickly jump in to point out that roughly the last half of the piece is very much about the way in which the house, that house in which your mother lives, she kind of made into a shrine to him and the way they lived together even after he was gone, if that's not putting it too strongly. No, it's not. So that's the second half of the phrase. So the glory prelude. Now, the glory prelude, because, again, it's a prelude because we're not there yet. An idea is that it's someday my mother will be in the heaven she believes in. And so it's only a prelude. When, once she's there, then it becomes something else. So it, it's, it's like movements in, in, in a musical piece or an opera. This is the prelude. This is an introduction. And the idea is that at some point she will be in this place where presumably there would be some kind of reunion for her. Now, we don't necessarily agree on that, but that's what it is for her. And, and in this piece, I'm documenting what it is for her. And so so she, she seals herself in this. In, in a way, she has ceased to have a life that is ongoing outside of this memory. So the piece opens visually with references to kind of the ancient temples you would see in the Anchor region of, of Cambodia. Why, why start there? I started there because, one, I, you can see I put my face into that. And it, 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 it's to show... Into, into a tree that's growing that's on the right. side and or on top to show, of the temple. And I like that it's planted because we think of those roots as having a kind of permanence that nothing else has. You see, get, going back to, to the fork again, what I like to emphasize is that there is no permanence. Permanence is an illusion. So we think of permanence if something has extreme longevity, if it lasts for hundreds of years, we think of it as permanence. And trees, with, with their, when, when we count their rings, and certain kinds of trees, well, good, goodness, the trees in, in Angkor Wat are, are ancient trees. And, and that's why it's that longevity that interested me. And so it's a prelude to longevity. And that is presumably, for instance, in, in heaven, it's eternal. And so here's the prelude to longevity, and I was trying to think of something that has roots. And we think of and what I like about roots, of course, a tree has branches and roots. So the roots are traveling underground, and they're very, very long. And these are ancient. Yes, so they're, they're, they're very old roots, and I think that's significant. 
Well, and you draw a visual analogy between those roots and hair. Absolutely. Yes. And so that's why later in the piece, there's a scene where you see my mother is painting the floor of her porch. And she and I, when I was very young, we're, we're, we're sitting there and it's, it's, it's before this kind of makeshift storefront church where it says praise the Lord or something. And, and you see, and I, I use hair because hair kind of roots again. It's rooted into the scalp and hair can grow very long. And so when you see these, these lines um, attaching, going from the head, and it, 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 it's showing this. Now, I should say this. Why, while I use natural hair, my mother always used wigs, and so you get your hair done. Right. So, so you see, this, this also has a, a strange thing to do about racist mixing. So they, they mix in me. So my mother is mostly African-American, but my father was not. Well, one of the, one of the bridges that, that kind of communicates that point in the piece is, and, and you know, once, once, once you hear it or see it, it's in your head for days, is Tressie the dress-up doll. Yes, her hair grows. I had a Tressie doll. Absolutely. I still have her, but I don't have her original clothes. Absolutely, I have a Tressie doll. And it was, it was the fact that you could just press that little button in her stomach and pull in her hair, and it would grow to these phenomenal lengths. I love that. So you had, you had a Tressie, and you remembered the commercial. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I, are you kidding me? No. But that, 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 that's sort of the point, because you see, it, it's the magic of the hair being able to grow. It's that magic. And it, it's, it's, it's almost as if, well, you know, I, I also include those, those records in there, Forget About Me. And, you know, I, I like including those, and I, I sing with them. But, but it, it's, my mother has the sense that, oh, I don't know, life is over. And I want to say it, it's not that there is still an opportunity to do something, that as long as you're alive, there's a chance to participate in existence. She doesn't believe that. Why are you interested in hair as a metaphor? Is that entirely out of your own experience, or are you kind of tapping into kind of something that we've seen in a lot of the last 50 or so, 60 or so years of contemporary art? Well, a couple of things. That is a, a, a reality of things. Many people don't assume Say that the African American woman can grow extremely long hair, or 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 at least the, the texture would, would be different. Whereas I don't know that you've seen pictures of me of me lately, but I have waist length hair, and it is the the texture is clearly that of a mixed race person. And 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 this is since since I I, I wrote this poem or, or made the video, but my hair is enjoying unusual growth. And so I feel like a Tressie doll myself. And as I say, I, I go walking through the neighborhood. I'll probably walk later on today. And I have this, what I, I like to call, butt-kissing hair. That's how long it is. And, and you know, I, I walked in the rain, and so I, I took a few selfies of myself. And in and, and, and one of them, it looks to me like, like one of those moments in, in this video. And, and so it, it, it's tapping into to, 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 to that as well. And, and it's, it's also, it's, it's, it's sort of my embracing all the parts of me and not saying that one part is better than the other. But, you know, and, and, and I, I bring in the, the galactic, galactic elements in, within it because I try to think about that, where she is so locked into that house in Cleveland, Ohio, where she's lived since 1963. Let me tell you how the neighborhood has deteriorated. The decline is, 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 it's beyond belief, and yet she stays there. Her house has been broken into I don't know how many times. She will not leave because it's the house my father bought. From my experience with my grandmother, I know what that's like in a, in a, in a practical day-to-day -day way. What is the process you go through to choose what visuals you add to a poem and how they should work? Well, all right, so... It, it made sense to me in, in this piece to the process is I'm, I'm looking for, well, one, I thought it was good to, I wanted to have my mother actually in it because she is a widow and her whole life has become a shrine. So the process is to look for things that will help me make the point. And again, I'm thinking of, you won't have benefit to see this on a paper page. You're only going to see what is in the video. And so the video has to make sense by itself. It's not dependent upon the, the words you don't see. Yeah, and, and then there is the music that my son played on my toy piano. Again, to, to, to go back to this, this, this sense of the role of the house, the role of this place, 
yeah, and and to emphasize how important that was. So, if you will, all the things are rooted in that. And so I made my choices for what to see based on that. And so the the anchor what came out of the idea of roots. I'm trying to think of what are some of the the the, the strongest roots we know. Th- those roots they are ancient and they are part of a spiritual system. So that's a spiritual place. And this becomes a spiritual place for my mother, even though it has declined in in tremendous ways. Kind of like kind of like the anchor temples. Yes, absolutely. So it sounds like adding visual images to a poem and make it to make it a video poem or or a video installation isn't really that different from deciding on the ideas and imagery you choose in using words on paper. That's right. But the difference is that in the video piece, I can show Tressie. I can show the commercial, whereas I can't do this with just the words. So that is, and I can also show all the wigs because my mother loves them. And so you get to see those heads turning. She, she is embarrassed by her own appearance. And, and so as opposed to having hair rooted in her scalp, she has this hair that's not rooted in anything except manufacture. So it, it, it's rooted in the company profits, not in her head. And I'm saying this has affected her thinking, too, because she's not used to partaking of things that have roots in her life other than religion itself. That is where she has her roots. And in a sense, her life stops after the death of my father, her, her life outside of those memories. And so we, we sit together. So you see us sitting together. And I duplicate us so that you can see there's this kind of closeness. And then I have the roots coming out of our heads. Yeah, no, that's a, that's an idea that comes across really, really clearly visually. Well, Thylias Moss, thanks so much for talking with me. You're welcome. I was glad to do it. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.